It's Friday, May 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After a couple days of some very impassioned debate, the Florida House of Representatives passed a controversial bill that would permit classroom teachers to carry guns in schools. It is an expansion of a Guardian program created after the Parkland shooting last year. The new bill is opt-in for school districts and also includes some other safety procedures. Colleen Wright, education reporter for the Miami Herald, joins us for more. Next, the robots might have just arrived for your jobs, just not the way you would expect them to. Software and algorithms are used to screen applicants, hire employees, and assign jobs, but now they are also being used to determine who to fire. Technology is allowing managers to track worker productivity on a minute-by-minute basis. Greg Ip, economics columnist for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the algorithms are deciding more in the workplace. Finally, a great story about an almost perfect bank heist. Gary Caceres robbed the Alaskan bank he worked at and took $4.3 million. He hopped on a plane to Seattle, drove to Mexico, and then hopped on a bus to go the rest of the way. But that's when things went bad for him. Now he's back in the States and has just been sentenced to 10 years in prison. Kyle Swenson, reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for how this bank heist went wrong. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. More than 30 states now allow teachers that are highly trained, highly trained, talented people to carry guns in the classroom to protect themselves and to protect their students who they love. Joining us now is Colleen Wright, education reporter for the Miami Herald. After a few days of very impassioned debate, the Florida House of Representatives passed a controversial bill on Wednesday that would permit classroom teachers to carry guns in schools. The bill is already approved by the Senate. It's making its way to Governor Ron DeSantis' desk, who he's expected to sign it. It's an expansion of this Guardian program that allows the school districts to arm school staff before the exception was teachers who exclusively perform classroom duties were not in that group. Now this is removing that exception. What else do we know about this new bill that was passed? There was already a program called the Guardian Program. It was implemented after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas on Valentine's Day in 2018 last year. And it basically authorized school staff to carry weapons. That bill did exclude classroom teachers. The people who would be qualified could be like counselors or maybe the football coach or even the principal, anybody who wasn't in a classroom full time. So what this bill does is kind of just widens it so that just your regular you know, math teacher or social studies teacher could Uh, carry a weapon in the classroom. It also changes some other kind of like granular details in the bill, like for example, to have the guardian program. These are all voluntary. So if a school district wanted to opt in, but the sheriff's office that they were working with didn't want to, this new bill that, you know, is headed to to Governor DeSantis's uh, office would allow districts to pursue that anyway, uh, even without their, their sheriff's department's permission. How many school districts are indicating that they will be opting in? I've been reading a bunch of different things. A lot of them, it seems like, might not want to, but they will try to instead still hire more staff dedicated to being armed, still not arming the teachers. I wouldn't call support for arming teachers wildly popular, at least when it comes to the school districts themselves. Uh, Plenty of school districts have actually passed resolutions and I, you know, school board items that ban uh, teachers from carrying guns. So it would only be a few. I believe 
there's only been about like 20 or so out of 67 counties in Florida, about 20 or so have opted into the Guardian program You know, for this past school year, the 2018-19 school year. It wasn't for them to really necessarily arm like a school staffer. It was mostly to hire like an armed guard because that's kind of what the bill boils down to is they just want a good guy with a gun in every school, whether that's a school resource officer or sworn police officer or just a security guard um, who is designated and has to go through the training or a teacher. It's just got to be one of those three things. For example, Broward, where where the shooting happened, they couldn't get it together in enough time to kind of contract some of those services with local police departments to get sworn law enforcement officers. So they did have to go the armed guardian route and take on security staff. What kind of training, if school districts were going to opt in and they were going to arm teachers, what kind of training would they have to go through with the sheriff's departments? Some people say that's not good enough. You need to have a sworn officer. And other people, you know, other people, uh, supporters of the Guardian program will say there's plenty of training. Um, I believe off the top of my head, it's about 132 hours of training, uh, including like firearm training, uh, diversity training, I believe, is also in there. I actually went out to a training last year uh, in Broward County for the Broward County Guardians, and they were doing target practice. So it depends on who you talk to. Some people say it's sufficient training. Some say it isn't. Is there a specific style of firearm that teachers or staff would be permitted to use? That's always decided at the local level, at the school district level. There's been talk about, well, should the weapon be concealed? Should it not be concealed? Where should it be stored? Those are all decisions made at the local level. So, uh, no, they're not. I I don't believe they're walking around with like AR-15s or anything. Um, But I do believe that they're handguns. When the Parkland shooting happened, there was a commission created to investigate some of the failings that happened there. And the commission did recommend that the legislature allow classroom teachers to be armed. I know that Republicans in the House were pointing to some of that as reasons to expand the program. What were some of the rifts happening between Republicans and Democrats when debate on this was happening? The commission chair, Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Galtieri, would always say, you know, two guys is better than one guy with a gun. Three is better than two and four is better than three. He was of the idea that the more people armed on campus, the better and could have stopped a shooter like Nicholas Cruz, who multiple times, you know, had kind of like a downtime to reload his gun. Democrats have argued that that there's already enough on teachers. Teachers don't want to be armed. They they want to be armed with books and supplies and materials and, and professional development, not guns. Many people have also said that, you know, just because you have more armed guards or or people carrying firearms on campus that that might not do anything. A lot of people point to the fact that there was a school resource officer at Stoneman Douglas that day who who wasn't active and did not go into the building despite hearing shots. So there there has been a lot of rifts. It's a very passionate debate, a lot of a lot of feelings flying around. So we'll see. The the thing about this bill is that it you have to opt in. A school district right. has to opt in. So it, it is optional for districts and and I think a lot of districts are are really you know, grateful for for that line in that bill. Colleen Wright, education reporter at the Miami Herald. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If it's time for a new job, it's time to get to know Express. Your local employment experts, Express Employment Professionals, is ready to help. Apply on the Express Jobs app or at expresspros.com. Express offers good-paying jobs and administrative roles, including customer service, sales, and accounting positions, as well as skilled labor jobs like machinists, forklift operators, welders, and CNC programmers. If you need a new full-time or summer job, Express can help. Express has even received the Talent Satisfaction Award from Best of Staffing. Apply now at expresspros.com 
or call your local office. You can even complete your application over the phone. Express knows jobs, and it's time to get to know Express. An Express associate said, Everyone at Express is supportive, and they went out of their way to place me in a job. I greatly appreciate Express. When you apply for a job, you need a callback and a chance to interview. Let your local Express employment specialist help you. Job seekers never pay a fee at Express, and Express has thousands of open positions. Land a new job now with Express Employment Professionals. The software can be designed to very precisely measure exactly how many seconds it's taking an employee to do a specific task and then report back how that employee is doing, both to the employee and to the manager. Joining us now is Greg Ipp, economics columnist for The Wall Street Journal. For a long time, there's been this worry that robots are coming for our jobs. We know right now that software and algorithms are used to screen applicants, hire employees, assign some of their jobs. But now the new worry is that they're also being used to terminate workers. These software and algorithms are being used to monitor the productivity of a lot of workers, often lower paid workers, and they're making recommendations for people to be fired. What do we know about this? This has gotten attention because there's been a report that Amazon has a system for measuring the productivity of its workers and its fulfillment centers. And this system automatically measures, for example, how long it takes them to scan an item, box an item, compares that to a uh, benchmark. And if the employee is not meeting the uh, targeted level, they'll get a series of automated warnings and finally an automated termination notice. Now, the actual termination is the decision of the manager, but it appears that the system that Amazon uses is the main factor determining who gets kept on and who's uh, terminated. I can see the benefits of something like this for a manager, especially if they have a lot of employees working under them. And, you know, it's hard to keep track of what everybody is doing. People can slip through the cracks and it could be, hey, you know, so-and-so over here is lazy and -and so-and-so over here is doing an amazing job, but their work productivity kind of balances each other out and you might not notice these things can slip through. So I can see where these benefits can come from. Obviously, Amazon is key in the article that you wrote. What other industries are using these types of algorithms. Well, you're right. I mean, there's nothing new about managers monitoring the productivity of their employees. In fact, that's kind of why managers exist. And it's happened since time immemorial. You know, on the shop floor, factory foreman would make sure there were no slackers that the job was being done correctly. General Electric, Jack Welch, who was a CEO long ago, used to be famous for a rank and yank. You know, he would essentially cull his weakest performing managers every year. So the fact that companies monitor the productivity of their employees and replace the lowest performers, that's not new. I think what is new is that the widespread availability of very powerful software and algorithms takes it essentially to a new level. I mean, especially in workplaces where the work is very, in some sense, routine and easy to count and monitor, for example, in call centers or industrial laundries, food service, is that the software can be designed to very precisely measure exactly how many seconds it's taking an employee to do a specific task and then report back how that employee is doing, both to the employee and to the manager. Now, as you said, there might be some advantages to this. You don't want people being fired because the manager was in a bad mood that day or just happened to take a disliking to that individual or perhaps for reasons of sexism or racial bias. And so the computers are less likely to be biased that way. On the other hand, you could see that the temptation might be for companies to put more and more decisions in the hands of algorithms and computers and taking really the human element of management away. And these are jobs which are often very tough and very routine. There might be a lot of monotony. And it seems that has potential to make what is a difficult job even more inhuman. This technology can track People, as you said, minute by minute, second by second. Truck drivers, it can track the speed that they're driving, gear changes, how many engine revolutions per minute in retail settings. It can track if the cashier is scanning items quickly enough to meet certain goals. That's got to be really frustrating, these constant reminders that you might not be living up to the goals as 
specifically at Amazon, I know that some of the associates get performance updates. You know, you're, you're falling behind or something like that. What does this do to the relationship between managers and their employees? It's hard to say because the process has been very gradual. And, and as we were discussing earlier, employees have always been monitored. Also, Amazon says that there's always a managerial interaction with the employees, that they try to work with the employee to bring up their performance before they're terminated. And a termination decision can be appealed to human supervisors. And also, Amazon says that the number of people who have been terminated for these reasons actually has been going down over the last few years. So if you had a system that only fired a few people, like a tiny percentage of your employees every year, and that these were genuine slackers, you might say, well, that's not such a terrible thing. In fact, it probably helps the managers do their jobs better because it's hard to monitor so many people. I think where it gets to be a little dicey is let's say that every single year the company raises its productivity target and says, okay, you process so many packages last year per hour. Let's try and raise that number 10% this year and then 10% next year. And so you can sort of see how for employees you get a kind of a hamster on a wheel feeling that the fact that you pass the performance test this year doesn't necessarily mean you'll pass it next year. And certainly from reports in the media, employees do feel a lot of pressure to perform Amazon. There's a faint feeling of always being monitored that you can't take too long in the bathroom because that could result in a warning. One of the interesting things about the software and algorithms using to hire people and all this stuff is how accurate they could be. Uh, There were some economists that look into how 15 firms use some of these job testing technology to test applicants and then hire them. The algorithms marked some applicants having high or moderate or low potential. And the study found that employees that were hired against the software's recommendation often were below average performers. Often managers or humans feel that they have a special insight into a particular problem and uh, managers whose job it is to hire people are no different. They might say, well, I met this individual and I have a really good feeling or really bad feeling about them. But it turns out, according to this study, that the software is usually right. And you can sort of see where this goes over time, is that as if the computers systematically show better judgment than the humans, then the humans will gradually have their role in this process removed entirely. Greg Ipp, economics columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Good to talk to you. He told his boss that he wanted to stay late to plan an ice cream social for <laughs> that's the for best thing bank bank customers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because who would pick that up? Right. So he stayed late and then walked into the vault with a cart and walked out with four point three million dollars. Joining us now is Kyle Swenson, reporter for the Washington Post. I love a good bank high story, and this one actually took place in 2011, which is kind of interesting, but it just had its final resolution earlier this week on Monday. There's a guy named Gary Caceres, Gerardo Aiden Caceres Valenzuela, but Gary for short. He was a bank vault manager at a key bank branch in Anchorage, Alaska, and he planned the perfect heist. He stole $4.3 million, and he almost got away with it until he made it to Mexico, which was his final destination. But Mexican police there searched his bags and found the money and some guns. Tell us about this crazy story. From what we understand, uh, this individual, Caceres, he had meticulously planned this bank robbery. Now, his motives, there's a few things up in the air about his motives. He says he did this to pay for his father's medical bills. The Department of Justice, however, says that he was 
kind of trying to seek revenge because he felt that his position at this particular bank would be eliminated and he'd be out of a job soon. So he set about very meticulously planning this. It took a lot of prep work, I guess you'd say, to set the stage for it. He had to train some new employees in a way that would basically not allow for two-person verification to access the bank vault. And then on the day of actually doing it, having laid that groundwork, he told his boss that he wanted to stay late to plan an ice cream social for <laughs> that's the for best thing bank bank customers yeah yeah because who would pick that up right so he stayed late and then walked into the vault with a cart and walked out with 4.3 million dollars he obviously worked there so he knew the setup there there was security cameras in the building but no armed guards and since he was the bank vault manager it was just easy for him i'm staying late i'm the only one here boom so he took the money and then he set the bank vault the timer there to not allow anybody to open it for six days which really let him escape at that point it was not till six days later he was already in mexico by the time that the bank found out about it tell us a little bit more about his plans you know he had a private jet waiting for him, a chartered jet waiting for him. Tell us what he did after he got out with the money. What was kind of brilliant about this is so the day before he stole the $4.3 million, he'd stolen a smaller amount of money, about $30,000. And he used that money to basically charter a jet from Anchorage to uh, Washington State. And so literally the next day when he walks out with his $4.3 million, he just drove to the airport and got into this charter jet and flew to Washington State, where he met up with his girlfriend, who we understand was in on the plan, knew what was happening. She had flown ahead in a regular commercial flight. And so they meet up in uh, Washington State. For some reason, he decided he needed a gun, probably because he was carrying all this money with him. So he asked a cab driver if a cab driver could somehow hook him up with a gun. Right. And and the cab driver eventually hooked him up with a uh, AK-47, a handgun, and some ammunition for about $4,000. Now, that right there is crazy in and of itself. The cab driver, <laughs> you, you know, okay, a handgun maybe, but an AK-47 from a cabbie? That is crazy. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They even mailed their phones to, I think, Florida and New York to try to throw investigators off. I mean, he really was trying to plan this out pretty thoroughly. And, you know, they knew that they needed a car. So him and his girlfriend, they buy a car with cash for Fusion in Seattle. They end up making their way all the way to California and then crossing over into Tijuana with no problem. Issue being, though, is he's trying to get to his uncle who lives in Sonora, Mexico. And the uncle tells him, hey, you know, the roads are really bad. Why don't you get on a bus? Take a Mexican bus. It'll be much better than you having to drive the roads. And so the girlfriend and him, they get on a bus. Along the way, on August 2nd, they get stopped at an internal checkpoint inside Mexico. And the authorities are like, all right, everybody off the bus. Grab your bags. We're going to search them. And then, you know, these Mexican police officers make... <laughs> the surprising find of their life <laughs> when they open up these duffel bags and find millions of American dollars. So in Mexico, when he gets caught, they basically charge him with it's analogous to money laundering and illegal possession of firearms for smuggling the cash in and the, and the firearms in there into into Mexico. The Mexican authorities caught him with three point eight million dollars. He stole four point three million dollars. So there is a question as to where some of this money had gone. And then the crazy part is. He spent seven years in jail in Mexico. He spent that whole time mm -hmm. there. He finally, after that ended, he got extradited back to the U.S. And that leads us to where we're at right now. Earlier this week, 
He got sentenced to 10 years more on top of that. Him and his attorneys, they have been trying to get for a lesser sentence, basically saying, look, you know, he spent seven years in a prison, which he described in a letter to the judge as like the filthiest place imaginable. You know, give him some credit for that time. And the prosecutors were like, whoa, you know, this missing $500,000, this half million dollars, it's still missing. They said, this is an issue. He's not being honest about it. We think that he's hidden this extra money away just for this. In case he gets arrested and ends up in jail, they'll have this half million dollars waiting for him when he gets out. So he has not revealed where this money is. He claims that he gave it to his father for those medical expenses, but then that money was then stolen, he says, before his father could even pay for the expenses. So that's his wild explanation. But we really don't know where this missing half million dollars is now. Kyle Swenson, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.